optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is seen a perfect time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. Athleticgreens.com slash TFS. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. BJ, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. It's very cool. Yeah, I appreciate it. And we are sitting in Venice at my friend's house, Devin and his his friend Travis Brewer, who's on American Ninja Warrior. So we have this incredible workout facility to the right, to my right, I guess, in the garage. But you do not, you work in Venice, but you live about an hour away. I live over an hour away. So I've been getting into podcasts. I actually enjoy, I was telling you uh, on the way in, I enjoy getting to see this other part of town because mm-hmm. LA is really like several different cities and uh, I've never really known the West Side. So it's worth it to me, at least for now, mm-hmm. um, to spend that hour. And, and listening to podcasts on the drive, it's really like an extra hour of reading a day. Do you have any any particular go-to podcasts at the moment? Uh, I just started getting into yours. Uh, what else do I like? I love this podcast called The Great Debates. It's a oh, comedy I'm not familiar comedy debate podcast. People really at the top of their intelligence to uh, Harvard friends of mine who are you know very well-educated, erudite comedy writers just going at the most trivial and, and, <laughs> and bizarre topics. One topic was... 
it would be cool if the Pope had an affair with Maura Tierney. <laughs> and one of them took the side. The Catholic Church needs uh, this sort of, you know, jolt and rebranding. And the other person saying, what's the point of an institution like this? You know, so... Uh, so I it's like that. debate club. I mean, it's... Yeah. It, and then there's one Intelligence Squared, which is sort of like the serious debate. The serious version of that. Yeah. The serious version of the comedy version of the serious thing. And uh, that was, that's been really interesting, too. <laughs> For those of you wondering what the whining is, it's not uh, it's not BJ. That's that's Molly, my dog. Uh, you mentioned two Harvard friends or fellow Harvard graduates. I have a question about Harvard, yeah. and uh, and you're a Princeton. Guy. I went to the, the the lesser known with the P, but uh, it seems like there is a rich history of people coming to Hollywood from Harvard that you yeah. don't associate with, say Yale. Or maybe maybe so, but I haven't I haven't come across it as much. Or other Ivies, why is that? Uh, because it seems to go back quite a ways. I mean, uh, my um, my family at one point knew Henry Beard, who then oh, yeah. helped create National Lampoon. Yeah, and it just seems to go way way back. And uh, I'd love to hear why that is. I really don't know. The main correlation that I I'm familiar with is the Harvard Lampoon, which is a really one of a kind comedy magazine that has its own spectacular castle building in the middle of prime real estate in Harvard Square. William Randolph Hearst funded this, this incredibly bizarre and exciting old building. And that has fostered a lot of intelligent people trying to get into this, uh, building slash magazine slash party house. And, those people sort of train each other really, I wouldn't quite say viciously, but, but really rigorously about comedy. This joke doesn't progress. This joke is predictable. And it's very rare that you'll get 19 year olds being hard on funny 18 year olds year after year. And so I think that is a training system that is unlike just about anything else you'd be exposed to at that age. So that has led to a lot of people falling in love with and becoming very good at comedy writing, which is, you know, a real A building block of entertainment that can be put to use. So a lot of people have traditionally graduated the Harvard Lampoon and gone on to write for The Simpsons or Saturday Night Live, um, or many, many other shows. And I think once you see graduates do that, you kind of think, Oh, maybe I could do that. A big advantage. I think of going to a fancy school, um, or, uh, my dad who did not go to a fancy school, but is a writer. Um, it, a lot of people ask me, Oh, did you have those advantages? Yes, of course, uh, to an extent, but I find the biggest advantage is just not thinking that it's a crazy idea to try to be a comedy writer or to try to be a writer. Many people waste years working as a lawyer, working, you know, whatever they do that they think of as, as a more reasonable choice before they finally get the courage to write. So I think that the huge advantage is if you have the talent, no matter where you are, if you believe that it's a reasonable choice of action, you're extremely fortunate. And that, that I think is a main advantage of going to Harvard. It doesn't seem crazy. Right. I mean, you, you have these, these historical case studies of people who've done exactly what you might fantasize about doing right. it, and the rigor and the training is very interesting to me because I was the graphics editor at the the Princeton Tiger. So uh, the satire magazine 
cartoons, illustrations. That was my department. And I wanted that job partially because Jim Lee, who's sort of an iconic hero in the comic book world for me, had that previous post at Princeton. Uh, and I found a bunch of his drawings, actually, that did re- when he was shit-faced drunk after uh, going to a party on Nassau Street. But that's, that's a separate story. The, the approach really was do something funny. And there wasn't a lot of structure. I mean, there was feedback if something sucked, obviously, or just didn't get any type of uh, laughs whatsoever. But where did that structure develop? I mean, did people come back uh, from, say, industry and help instill that in some way? Uh, or did it just develop organically among the students? The career path of it? Oh, no, I mean, the or being the- hard on, say, underclassmen and... Oh. and and looking imagine, at whether something progresses or not, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I imagine that was simply um, imitative of other, you know, uh, rigorous extracurriculars at a school like that where, you know, the ski club or, you know, rowing or the Harvard Crimson newspaper, or whatever, probably it's more inherited from that because a lot of people want to do these activities and you limit it to the people that you feel and it's an incredibly subjective practice, but are the most talented at comedy writing. And so you put them through, well, can you do this? Can you do that? And you have to write a number of pieces in order to get on Mm -hmm. the staff. So I think that, you know, everything at at a place like that is, is very competitive. And, and so this is just that same rigor applied to this incredibly subjective and often thought to be trivial field of comedy writing. Did you? And uh, this does not lead to the best comedy writers by any means. It is just it's that's one advantage, and the other advantage is uh, that they believe they can do it. There are also huge disadvantages to coming from the Harvard Lampoon, which is a lack of sort of life experience or being in touch with what real people actually find funny, <laughs> or a sense of cockiness uh, that is very antithetical to comedy. So there's definitely advantages and disadvantages to coming from a place like that. Did you, at what point in your undergrad did you get involved with the Lampoon? Uh, well, I tried to get on from the very beginning. Uh, so I tried, you comp is the term for, you know, auditioning for it with your writing. So I tried three straight semesters. So I didn't get on until the middle of my sophomore year, but I wanted to be on from day one. What do you think changed between your first attempts and getting accepted. How did you, how did you improve or was it just, that <laughs> I, I have no idea. I probably just improved cause I was older and had been doing it longer, but it's also incredibly subjective. I, if I had not gotten on, I had vowed to never try again and decide those people didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. And, and then I did get on and actually I did keep a healthy sense of this is not the be all end all, mm-hmm. but it, it's so subjective. How, how does, uh, when you then did, um, writing after college, well, actually let's, let's not uh, hit fast forward too quickly, although I'm, I'm happy to jump around the, the next step after graduating, uh, what happened in the year after graduation? Well, uh, I have a sort of bizarre, uh, sort of course of events and, what it has in common with everyone else is that everyone who gets a, a job in show business, they have a story that's not replicable. Uh, that's the one constant, ironically. So what happened was I was one of my main extracurriculars at Harvard was I put on a show called the BJ show, 
with another kid named BJ who was like a campus celebrity. He was like a reality show star before reality because he had stowed away on a plane to visit his family for Thanksgiving. This is before 9-11, so it wasn't quite as bad. Or, But it's still, you know, it made the papers Harvard students stows away on plane. He was the guy from the plane, you know. And so I saw an opportunity here, you know, to hitch my fame to his. And we put on this <laughs> To get attached, show. to yeah. get the plane guy attached to your Yeah, project. it's like, you know, I have the same name as the guy who was on the plane. Maybe we should do something together. So we put on the show and I got, you know, some of my comedy friends. And we wrote this sort of, it was a variety show. It was a variety show and parody of a variety show called The BJ Show. Um, my senior year, uh, I decided, let's invite Bob Saget to perform in this show because I had heard that he was a really filthy stand-up comic, which he is. Now, what, what was the, the timing on this? This was probably... Uh, this is 2001. 2001. Yeah. Okay, so this is before America's Funniest Home Videos. Or, no, no, this no, is after. Or I'm sorry, after. Yeah. Uh, so he's well-known as a you know, family-friendly guy. Right. But I have heard rumors that he's filthy really filthy. So I think maybe we can book him. Maybe we can... Uh, maybe we can honor him at the Harvard Lampoon and because he'll want the award, he'll come and do the show, which worked perfectly. I approached his management. I cold called his management and said, I'm calling from Harvard. We want to give Bob Saget an award and, and feature him in the show. And the show, you know, the proceeds went to charity. It wasn't a scam for me. I just thought it'd be a great show. By the way, that's a great thing. Always, if you don't care about the money, always give the money to charity because then everyone will do it. Um, and often you just don't care about the money. You just want to put on something cool. So that's something I learned in college that I'll probably use again. If anytime I have like some cool scheme, um, <laughs> like, sure. Keep them uh, like, who cares? So I cold called his management. I asked my dad, how do you think I get in touch with Bob Saget? He said, call CAA. We're from like Boston. I don't know how he does. He said, look up, call 411, get CAA's number and ask CAA. They'll probably know. It's like, that's so smart. So I One of the CAA. big agencies in town. Yeah. For somebody. So I call CAA. I say, do you guys represent Bob Saget? The receptionist says, uh, no. I say, do you know who does? They say, I think Brillstein Gray. So I look up Brillstein Gray. I call Brillstein Gray. Um, they do represent Bob Saget. They put me through to a guy. Um, I explain my case. He says, send the, send the stuff you're writing for Bob. I'll take a look. This guy later becomes my manager. Um, <laughs> so the manager, Michael Price, likes the material, recommends that Bob does it. Bob comes out and does the show, which is a very highly scripted show. There's a parody of Full House called The Lost Episode of Full House in which Bob learns about sex from Uncle Jesse. <laughs> um, very dirty, very funny. Anyway, um, so after the show, Bob and he had brought his show's creator. Uh, he was doing a new show that never really went anywhere, but it lasted one season. It was called Raising Dad. Oddly, it starred Kat Dennings and Brie Larson, who are now both very, very successful as well. Um, but they hired me. They were like, oh, cool, a young, edgy writer, Harvard Lampoon, perfect. And they gave me a job on that staff while I was, you know, about to graduate. So I'm graduating. Perfect. Set up. Perfect in a way. In a way. I mean, too good to be true on a career level. Um, but again, like I didn't, I really had these, uh, fantasies of being a great artist, a great, you know, filmmaker and, you know, a sort of a family WB show. I didn't want to move to LA. I knew that I shouldn't say no to this and I didn't say no to it, but it was, uh, you know, I actually wanted to be like a starving artist, you know, and easy. I'm like, look, I'm from like a suburb. Starving artist means like borrow a little money and like live cheap. I, I have no real illusions, but I didn't, I, I had mixed feelings. So it was sort of 
a dream come true in the sort of career moving forward. But it was, uh, you know, I, I was, I don't know. What did you think you, what type of starving artist did you think you wanted to be when you were sophomore, junior? I had read, um, this book, Easy Riders Raging Bulls about, uh, independent film. And, uh, would I you recommend it? Highly recommend it. One Easy Riders favorite. Raging Bulls. Easy Riders Raging Bulls about oh, sort of filmmaking in the, in the glory days of the seventies. And I wanted to be like that. Um, and then there's a sequel about sort of the, uh, Miramax, like the nineties Tarantino, Kevin Smith, that is also good. But I really, I wanted to write like a screenplay that would like blow Hollywood apart. It was so edgy and innovative, et cetera. And then demand to direct it. And you know, that's, that's, I think anyone who saw Pulp Fiction as a teenager, that was their fantasy. So For that sure. was very much my fantasy. And, um, you know, in my privileged wannabe artist mind, this was a sellout move. But you know, I I knew it, I knew it would be even more like privileged and like eye rolly to turn it down. <laughs> I mean, so it, it's an interesting paradox. I've noticed this when I was young. I thought, oh, I, I'll never be a sellout. If anyone ever offers me something uh, sellouty, I'll always say no. Then you realize there's a huge integrity pull towards doing the seller thing. Cause you think, who am I to turn down all this money for something that someone else's would, you know, struggle their whole lives to et cetera, et cetera. And you actually feel very guilted into towards at least doing what you would have considered a sellout thing. So that's, it's an interesting paradox that I've observed with a lot of successful people. They get, you know, they get offered a really lame movie for a ton of money and their thought isn't, fuck that, I'm an artist. Their thought is, God, who am I? I'd put my kids through college just to do a, a right. Christmas movie. Who am I to say no? It's very surprising. Right. I mean, it makes sense, but I, I'm surprised. It does make it. sense, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's an incentive of guilt as opposed to sort of an incentive of, yeah. of focus in a way. It's kind of like the Christmas story where it's like, there are starving kids in China, you know, and you're like, oh, okay, I'll eat this food that you put in front of me. Right, right. Uh, how did you then make decisions or what happened after you were offered that gig on the, I took it, you took it, you know, I, I took it, uh, moved to LA, started writing for it. Um, and I, you know, I looked around the room. I, I, it's interesting. I kept telling myself I'm making so much money because for a kid at that age, it, it's so much money, but any job I've had since then, I made more money on the office, for example, and I never thought I'm making so much money. So anytime I'm telling myself I'm making so much money, I'm making so much money, that's a warning sign that you're doing the wrong thing. Mm. Um, so I would tell myself that um, because I gradually realized this isn't the life I want. I'd look around this writer's room and think, these are not the jobs I want. And I really, and I'm glad I did, I really had these uh, dreams of doing something important and visible and exciting. Uh, and the only people in the room who I did aspire to be something like were Bob Saget, who would come by now and then in his fancy car and cool sunglasses and tell 10 jokes and leave um, and get to be the star of the show. And Jonathan Katz, who created the show and had previously created Dr. Katz on Comedy Central. Oh, sure. Really cool show. Oh, yeah. I know Dr. And he Katz. also came by now and then, gave some words of wisdom and jokes, and then left, and was also celebrated for his own voice. And I thought, well, those are the guys I want to be. And they were both stand-ups. So I thought I had never thought of doing stand-up before then, but I realized, well, how, how insurmountable is this? Being a stand-up is writing a joke and then saying the joke 
And that is what I'm doing in this writer's room. I write a joke. I say it out loud to see if it goes in the script. Um, I guess I, I could try that and try to be like them. And so as the show was winding down, I signed up for open mics around LA and I would start, you know, saying one liners into a microphone and I was kind of doing stand up comedy. What was the, do you remember any of your early bits when you yeah. get up? Well, the first time was a real disaster. And one of my most important pieces of advice to anyone doing stand up is if you're really going to try stand up, book your whole week of shows, your whole first week. Uh, in advance. So you can't quit. So you can't quit because I, I got up all this courage to do my first show. It was at a youth hostel, the Hollywood youth hostel. It was October 10th, 2001. So less than a month after nine 11, all my jokes were about nine 11 and I was not a good comic <laughs> and the crowd didn't speak much English. So, uh, I, and I followed a guy who killed, he did an impression of Robert De Niro taking a dump. And I have to say it was great. It was a great impression and you didn't need to know English. And it it was completely the opposite of what I was doing, and uh, so I did this bit. It was horrible, and the the host said after me to try to you know keep the show going. All he could muster for me was takes a lot of courage to get up on this stage. <laughs> um, and after that, I did not get on stage for three months. I had to work up the courage all over again because it had been such a disaster. And that time, I was like, you know what? Tuesday I'm going to this coffee shop. Wednesday I'm going to this bar. You know, all these open mics, and you know. The first night back, I did pretty well. And the second night, I didn't do well. But you can't make each night a referendum on whether or not you should be doing it. You just have to do a bunch. And how did your approach change between that first bomb and uh, the second sort of collection of attempts? It was really, it, it was exactly that. It was the idea that uh, that I'm going to really do this night after night and I will evolve the act. And, you know, I was really bad for a while. Um, but you know, let's say you do 20 jokes and three of them get pity laughs. Well, those are the three you keep. <laughs> and then after a while, one of them always does well. Well, that's your opener. And now two of them do well. Well, now you have a closer and, uh, you sense, Oh, okay. When I do this kind of joke, it does well. And you know, it, it evolves that way. And, um, uh what did your parents do? You mentioned your dad wrote, he also, he wrote some memoirs or ghost wrote some yeah, memoirs for does. some big people. Right? Yep. I mean, what, what are some sample? Uh, um, the biggest one he did, was Lee Iacocca. Mm -hmm. The biggest and first one he did. He also did the memoirs of Nancy Reagan, of Tip O'Neill, uh, Magic Johnson, which was very exciting for me. He worked with Tim Russert on two books and George Stephanopoulos. So a lot of political people on, on both sides of, of the spectrum and, a lot of uh, just eclectic business leaders, you know, various people. What did your What did your mom do? My mom is a teacher now. Mm -hmm. uh, she's done a bunch of things, though. She's a, also kind of an eclectic career. What uh, What did they think of your move to startup? Uh, to not startups. That comes a little later. Stand up, similar sounding word. <laughs> what did the uh, How did they? How did they, Well, how, yeah. How did they feel about that? What I were the think, conversations like? Yeah, I think they thought I wasn't very good. <laughs> you know, there, my dad also is the co-editor of a couple of humor books that are very good. The big book of Jewish humor and the big book of new American humor. And my family, like comedy is a big deal to us. Like we watch, they watch Seinfeld every night. Seinfeld and Key and Peele are the only things my parents watch, which I think is very good taste. 
So, you know, I think they kind of just, they definitely supported me writing. You know, I'd studied literature at Harvard, you know, my dad's a writer. There was nothing, again, huge advantage for me that my parents thought writing was like a good, a solid job, you know, and then stand up was where they were like, oh, like, okay, get it out of your system. This is not you, but whatever. You know, they never said this to me, but yeah, this- in retrospect, it's like, I, it's the same thing on stage when the audience is laughing and then you say something off the cuff and you get a huge laugh and you realize, oh, they weren't even laughing before. That, my parents were like supportive, supportive, supportive. And then they really supported something different. And you're like, okay, so you were not, okay, you were just being polite, fair enough. <laughs> and uh, the, so that was the sort of BG- But they were slow, you know, they yeah. came, they're supportive people. They came around mm-hmm. and, you know, they supported the office, you know. When, so when did that. the, what happened between that startup uh, I really want to say startup. That's just this is why I'm is. taking a break from startups because I'm just like completely brainwashed. The the you took a uh, from that that's first. If you have if you title this interview from stand up to startup. I could yeah that could be your that could be your memoir. That could be. I'll call my dad right now. <laughs> Should from that point to the office, what happened between those? From that point to the office, well, raising dad got canceled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I continued doing stand up. I ran out of all the money that I had saved on my big money year um, in about you know a year and a half, two years of doing open mics, and you know gradually getting better to the point where at the end of sort of after a year and a half, which is a long time when you are a kid from the suburbs, it's a long time. It's it's a long time, but. Compared to most stand-ups, you know, I got very lucky, of course, but it did feel like a very long time because um, I had been working. After about a year and a half, I got decent, definitely decent at stand-up, and I was starting to get booked at uh, respected alternative rooms, at the improv. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people in Hollywood that are always looking for anyone half-promising to sign or to put on showcases, and I was becoming that comic that people would say, oh, there's a new guy, he's, he's pretty good, you know, that kind of guy. And at the end of that, a bunch of things, the end of that sort of two-year stretch, a lot of things kind of happened at once. I got cast on the show Punked. Sure. I replaced Dax Shepard as the new guy, which I thought, that, oh, that's what I'll be famous for for the rest of my life. I'm the guy from Punked. Um, so I, like, I did pranks on Hilary Duff and Usher and people like that. Incredibly fun. And... I got booked on Conan. I got booked on Comedy Central. Was the then, Usher prank? I, I have a vague memory of this. Was this when his brother yep, was set up yep, to like yep. steal jewelry? Yep. Or? <laughs> and then I tell him. Usher handled that so well, I he thought. He was great. And then I tell Usher, you know, we can let this go if you record a radio ad for our store and do this <laughs> rap that I wrote. <laughs> 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 they wrote a really funny rap and I have to rap this to Usher. It's so hard to keep a straight face. And one of the brilliant touches the writers have put in is that um, in the rap, Usher is, refers to himself as Ice. And then I apologize that we originally wrote this for Vanilla Ice who passed. <laughs> so I got to do really funny, clever things. And around this time, I was on a showcase uh, stand up, a stand up showcase for a network, and you know now I'd booked Punked and stuff like that, and that's when Greg Daniels, who was creating the American Office, saw me and thought he was already looking for people that could write and act, and my jokes were very clearly like you know clever writing; they weren't like a raw personality or anything. So he thought, oh, maybe you can do, and I had had a writing job. Maybe you could be a writer actor, which at the time was it was a very experimental idea. Yeah, I was going to ask you why he was very, looking for that because he had worked at Saturday Night Live. 
and he had had a good experience where there it was a small gang of people who were kind of writing their own things. And also the British office had, had been a small, you know, Ricky Gervais had written so much of it. So he was totally right. Let's, let's not have a corporate feeling show with a writing staff and a cast. Let's cast kind of funny people who can kind of do it as a little unit. And what was, uh, so what was the very beginning of the office like for you? Um, the beginning of the office was very exciting creatively, especially because it was not thought to be a show that this is now I got to feel like that starving artist, like, you know, the actual integrity, this was not considered a successful, a show with any chance for success. It was a very drab, there's no laugh track. There's no colors. It's bleak. It's not a pretty cast. It's the jokes are very slow and dry. And it's a remake of a British show that, you know, NBC had a track record of disastrous remakes. So it was a six episode mid season order. Um, you know, it was a really actually, no, it was just a pilot order. And then we squeaked into six episodes. So the beginning was, you know, but it was the, the people working on it were brilliant. Steve Carell's improvisations and Greg Daniels sort of joke pitches and story outlines. And, you know, pretty soon this very lean writing staff of Mindy Kaling and Paul Lieberstein, who played Toby on the show and, uh, a bunch of other, you know, real, um, Larry Wilmore, who now hosts, um, the nightly show on Comedy Central, you know, real, real lean group. And, you know, so creatively it was extremely exciting. And, and then it was bizarre when it became successful because we How had come long to did think it of take? it as, as the show that for the rest of our lives, we'd meet one or two comedy fans who were like, that's a classic, you know, that's <laughs> what we were going for, for like Mr. Show, mm-hmm. like cult status. And when did it, when did you feel the tipping point or was there a particular event or moment yeah. or time when you're like, Holy shit. Yeah. This thing is actually yeah. going to be successful. The or is beginning successful. of the second season, um, it was around December, I think. So we'd been out for like over a year, but only a few episodes. And they moved us from two things happened. They moved us from Tuesday to Thursday, um, which I felt was very important because now, you know, the night you're on doesn't matter so much in the DVR era. But back then, I, my theory was that you wouldn't want to watch a show about an office at the beginning of your work week. Like, <laughs> it's, not, it's like not a, funny on Tuesday. It's like a fair assumption. It's yeah. funny on Thursday. It's almost over. <laughs> um, so there was that. And then the big thing was that the Apple iTunes, uh, store process began. And we, because our, our cult audience was very young and tech savvy, they made us a very big hit on the iTunes store, even though we were not a hit on NBC. And then people were walking around with like video, iPods with the office on it and they were sending each other, you know, links to download it and stuff. And so it was really one of the first shows to be a hit, like an online hit in that way. And that really was this viral, you know, proto viral way that the word spread about the show. And, uh, so I have to ask a question that I've always wanted to ask somebody involved with the office because I have no idea how this came to pass. But a fan sent me a link to a clip at one point. The, the four hour work week came up in an episode of The Office where there's this big debate going on, uh, amongst everyone. And uh, someone says, What do you mean? I sent you an email, uh, 
pointing to Daryl, and Daryl says, I don't check email until 12 noon. Yeah. Four-hour work week, and then it zooms out of his face. Do you have any idea how that happened? I, I mean, it's a very specific question. I was but in the room when that was pitched. I don't remember whose it was. Um, it was just, I, I thank you for being part of that joke. Uh, I... I, I w- Working backwards from what we must have meant, it, yeah. was, it was just funny. Like every little thing is going wrong, you know, for Michael on this episode. It was, uh, it was really uh, hilarious and made. I mean, really made my week. That was uh, awesome. It, it was very, uh, very surprised to come across it. The the so the office. What are some lessons learned through your experience at the office? I mean, what did you get better at, and yeah. wh- and and why? Um, lessons learned, and we could talk about. I mean, you could yeah. you could you you could have a particular person in mind if that helps. Yeah. Um. Well, one lesson that I learned from that, as well as from stand up, was that you really never know how something's going to play until you test it. Um, scenes that felt like they were just airtight winner hilarious scenes in the writer's room sometimes just would not work on set and you had to learn to not be angry at it for not working you had to learn to listen to the audience and that's a major major lesson there's no one smarter than the audience and it was so this is actually uh, something that so it was filmed in front of a live audience no, but there's, you know, there's that's, a crew, that's where, but you okay, just feel just, it. You just you feel do, it. If it's flat, read. it's flat. First you do a table read of each episode. So you have a big room of people laughing or not laughing. And then when you take it down, if it's like a rewrite scene or something, you know, Steve Carell says it and you're just there, you know, even just you and the cameraman, like you're smiling or you're not. Right. Um, or then you edit it and it works or it doesn't. And that was, I think, a humbling lesson for someone who thought of himself as, you know, a real writer. Um, because writing is really, it's just a guess. And, you know, there's no, there's no penalty for doing your homework. So if you want to test your stand up at a thousand rooms before you do it on TV, or if you want to test the stuff you're writing for the office in as many groups as you can, do it. Because you're not, you're not smarter than the audience. It's for the audience. Would you test your material you're working on for the office and other environments? In like little rooms. Yeah. Everyone had their own office. So like, you know, Mindy and I would like read scenes out loud and, you know, just see if they sounded right. And right. Stuff like that. You either see someone smile or not. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Uh, what about uh, Steve Carell? Did you observe anything particular? Oh, well, I learned something from him, which was one time I, you know, wrote a bunch of jokes cause the scene wasn't working and I was the guy in charge of, you know, bringing alts as we call them, you know, other versions. Um, so I'd bring alts to the, to the set and he looked at all of them and he said, I don't know. These just feel like jokes to me. And I was like, well, yeah, they're jokes. That's what I do. That's what we do. Um, but for him, comedy had to come from, uh, comedy was a byproduct of authenticity. I would compare it to the difference between a kid who knows he's cute and a kid who doesn't. A kid who knows he's cute is not cute. A kid who just says something without realizing cute is hilarious. And that's what he wanted the office to feel like. Like, these people don't even know how funny they are. <laughs> um, so that was important. Um, I, I'm sure I'll come up with a lot more lessons because I learned yeah. more on that than anything. Well, we could, uh, let me... I can talk about the writing process that... I would love for you to write about... Pro- yeah, I'd love um, for you to talk about that. Well, the way that we would start a season, and I've adapted this to many things I've done since... Um, we'd start with what we would call a blue sky period, which was my favorite part of every year. 
uh, for two, three, four weeks sometimes if we had a long time. Every single day in the writer's room was just what if. There's no penalty. There's no maybe we can't. There's no but this one conflicts with that one. What if Dwight goes to the moon? What if Jim and Pam get divorced? What if, you know, just every idea is is valid for like for a while. That was just a, an amazing period. And then how the, long would that last? Would that would say? last if we didn't have much time for, cause we had different pre-production schedules between two weeks and four weeks. That's a decent stretch of time. Yeah. And was there structure to the what ifs? Like, was there somebody on a whiteboard taking yeah, down the a little favorites? Bit, or? But it was sort of improvised day to day. Like the showrunner would say, you know, all right, we don't have anything for Dwight or like, how about everyone split up and come up with 10 ideas for Ryan or, um, you know, let's come up with more ensemble stories. You know, there would be sort of a leadership that way. It wasn't just all sitting around, but what is an ensemble story? Um, I feel like I know what both really, words mean separately, but you know, I don't. The, the whole cast is involved in one thing rather than I see. a story, B story. Um, so that was incredible. Those, and it really was creatively important. And I, I try to replicate that in everything I do, just not shut down any ideas for a period. Just um, generate and not edit. Yeah. Um, and then the best ideas will have their, will fuel you past the problems. After a few weeks of Blue Sky, we would love some ideas so much. It would be obvious what the best, let's say we were, we were going to start with six stories, right? It was obvious what the best 15 were. And then we'd start talking more seriously. And then we'd look which ones do our love for the story carry us through the inevitable. Well, how could Dwight be here if he's also there? And, you know, stuff like that. Um, but finding the love first and then letting that carry you through the problem. Uh, Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, you find what you love about an episode, or in other things I've done, a story idea or a stand-up. It, you know, you gotta just indulge, develop what you love about it, so that when you then come up with, oh, but then we couldn't show this on TV, or um, it is kind of contrived, or whatever it is, you'll you'll love it so much that you will have the inspiration to fix it. Got it. Um, so you're developing the piece that you've fallen in love with enough so that you can handle all the inevitable yeah. uh, fixer-upper issues. I do that with my other writing, too. I always start with what I love. And if I'm stuck on a story um, and I approach it the next day, I never go to the hard part first. Some writers probably do. I go to what's, my, what's the one thing I'm proud of in the story. Could you give an example? Um, I, not off the top of my head, but you know, okay. like there might just or be hypothetical. There yeah. might just be a, a joke or a phrase or a beautiful line that I'm proud of that I, I I'm just so certain everyone's going to think I'm brilliant. And so I start at that and I get excited, and then I want everything else to live up to that rather than start at the problem. That's a personal mm -hmm. thing. I I am very motivated by positive mm -hmm. uh, thinking. Were there any other an ego, positive ego? You know, use your own ego to fuel yourself rather than uh, be an obstacle. Uh, what other approaches do you take in your work life or personal life to maintain positivity or use positivity? Um, I consider being in a good mood the most important part of my creative process. So right or wrong, I don't, I personally don't get up early unless I'm 
awake early if on the war I have somewhere to be. I know I've read the book we talked about daily rituals, mm -hmm. which I love. Yeah, and Mason Curry, great book. I'm demoralized by how many great people start their day very early. <laughs> were um, you were you also I tried to go to bed. Were, were you encouraged or demoralized by how many of them were drug addicts? <laughs> that like, was encouraged. It's like yeah, 90% yeah, yeah. used methamphetamine. <laughs> methamphetamine, right. <laughs> um, but you know, this Starbucks this venti Starbucks in front of me, like who's to say that doesn't have the same stimulation that they used back then? So, you know, if I try to go to bed early and wake up early, but if I need to sleep late or take a walk in the morning or whatever, I find that being in a good mood for creative work is, is worth the hours it takes to get in a good mood. So often when I was writing uh, my books, I would, you know, someone would check in, send me a text at like 1130, like, how are you doing? You know, what's, what's up? And I'd say powering up. I just feel, you know, the first few hours are just getting into a good mood until... I think, all right, all right. You know, I, I have an idea I'm excited about, or I have so much self-loathing and caffeine that I'm like, got to do something. <laughs> the self-loathing plus caffeine is a hell of a thing. I, yeah, uh, I, one of, uh, one of my friends, Kelly Starrett, who's a, a very well-known athletic trainer calls it cup of fear. So you take the self-loathing and then you, yeah. you drink a cup of fear. <laughs> um, I'll tell you my number one while we're on this, yeah. my number one creative uh, productivity advice to anyone. Um, in, I mean, anyone, if it works for you, I carry around a notebook and if I don't have a little notebook, I have my phone, you know, but I really divide my creative work into two distinct phases, which is the idea phase and the execution phase. And I do not let either interrupt the other, um, or, uh, yeah, I, yeah, that's the best way to say it. So if I'm taking a walk or I'm having a drink with a friend and just some funny idea comes up, something that makes me smile or, or some other impulse, I write it down uh, and I never judge, well, what would you do with this idea or how would you end that joke? Never. I just have this notebook and I feel like the richest man in the world in terms of ideas. Just fill it up, um, feel great, always, never question it. Then on a separate day, I sit down you know, nine or 10 AM with a big cup of coffee at my desk, go through the notebook and I do my best with every idea in the book. So I never am intimidated. When you say do your face. best, you're developing yeah. each one on a separate piece of paper or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. On my computer usually, mm -hmm. um, or continue an idea on the computer that I left off the previous day. But, uh, you know, but first I'll check my notebook. Oh, did I have any ideas for solutions or whatever? So the idea to me, everything is idea and execution. And if you separate idea and execution, you don't put too much pressure on either of them. I was reading a, an article by uh, Isaac Asimov about sort of creativity in groups versus solo uh, creativity and uh, very similar conclusion that he came yep. to, just keeping them separate. Now, when you uh, do you have a particular type of notebook, particular type of pen yeah. that you like? Yeah, I use the moleskin... Kahir, is that how you say it? I have no idea. You How's can it buy them C A H I E R. Mm. You can go on Amazon and buy these three packs. So they're much thinner than the typical Moleskine notebook. So you can really you can keep them in your pocket easier and you finish them so you feel more productive. <laughs> you feel like you've yeah, accomplished you just something. Fill them up in a couple weeks. <laughs> and then I have a huge box of them. But I use that and I use the Uniball Vision uh pen. And uh, generally. How do you do you date them? How do you keep track of these what notebooks? What I do, I order different colors. I mix up the colors that I order, and then I buy on Amazon these huge 
batches of stickers, shape stickers that teachers use to put on, you know, reports and stuff like stars and circles and blue rectangles and stuff. And every time I start a new notebook, um, I write my phone number in the first page in case anyone Super finds it. Super important. Yeah. Yep. And then I put a sticker in the top left corner of the book. And that lets me know what which one I'm on currently. And then I have a yellow, I'm sorry, I have a red box for um I have a, a white box for untranscribed notebooks, because then I transcribe them on my computer, and a red box for transcribed notebooks. And I don't date them. And I always tell myself I should date them. This is crazy because when I go through the white box, you know, I'm jumping around six months ago, four months ago, you know, I'm not going in order, but I guess just, I'm not going to question it because something about the creative process, I just don't want to date them. I just don't know. Interesting. What, uh, I mean, maybe that would create some bias against older material. I mean, for the same reason yeah. that I take dates on my blog posts and I moved them from the top to as a small italicized line at the bottom and my traffic jumped oh. like 20, 30% because people that are no longer biased against older material. That's very interesting. That's something on the list up too. We, we keep an eye on, uh, what, uh, and we're, we, we're going to talk a lot about lists. Not, not um, trying to rush you. No, no, no. We're, we're, we're going to get there. The, the, I love the red box and white box. When you develop these or do your best with them, as you said, on the computer, are you doing this in a particular app or program, or is it limited to whatever your current focus is, say a book or right. a screenplay or film? I use Microsoft Word. Mm-hmm. Um, same reason my dad used WordStar. It's just what I learned and got in the habit of. Um, and I use Final Draft for screenplays because everyone does. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like, I know there's other software out there. I would like something that kind of combines the two because often I would like to kind of write a paragraph and then kind of throw in dialogue easily. But, uh, I, it's not worth it to me to investigate and switch. Yeah. There's, there's a tool that I've used for my last few books that I found extremely helpful. It's not as, it's not as focused on screenwriting as say final draft, although people do use it for that. Uh, called Scrivener. I don't know if you've ever yeah, seen I have this. Heard of it, yeah. I've used it for my last two books. I found it extremely helpful for that format. I think it's mostly used by playwrights, I want to say, but there are screenwriters who use it. Uh, when you see so you like Ross, I was going to mention, uh, who, uh, invented Firefox. Firefox. Yeah. He's an investor in the list app and I've been trying to get him for years to develop with me, a, like a screenplay writing software. Cause he's actually a terrific writer. Uh, and he wrote the Silicon Valley spec script that he put on Twitter, which is such a tech way to get your spec out there, but it was, it was great. And, uh, I think he would be the guy to crack it because he's the writer and also the software developer. I think he'd Where do like is he based? Afternoon. Is he still in the Bay Area? Or yeah. is he? Yeah. I need to actually spend some time with oh, him. Oh, he's at the some best. Point. Uh, He was very, very kind uh, when, I think it was 2007, gave me a quote for the 4-Hour Workweek. And uh, I feel very indebted to him. So, oh, he's awesome. So if you're hearing this, thank you so much. I really uh, owe you a coffee and <laughs> dinner and a bottle of wine and probably more. Yeah. Uh, when you, how do you think of yourself? I mean, I guess it depends on perhaps what project you're working on, but which of these many activities and, uh, artistic projects, crafts that you've attempted, do you most identify with? Writer. Writer. Yeah. Any particular type or is it just across the board writer? Probably comedy writer, to be honest, for two reasons. One is just, it's, the identity I come from, I think it was Woody Allen 
who said, if you, you know, I do these different things, but if you woke me up and shook me in the middle of the night and said, what are, what are you? I'd say writer. Um, I definitely feel like that. That's a good, I should, I should, should rephrase my question yeah. <laughs> to mimic that, Woody Allen's wording. Everyone that. Yeah. If someone woke you up in the middle of the night and shook you and said, what's your job? What would you say? You know, or, <laughs> I guess the simpler way is what do you put on your passport or your, uh, customs declaration? I always uh, put writer. Um, but I think that everything I do is sort of a version of writing. Even if I'm acting, I'm sort of writing the way that I think this character would act. Do you know what I mean? Of course. Um, so, or if I have an idea, mm-hmm. I really feel like, you know, idea and execution, that to me is writing. If you were teaching a, let's see, freshman seminar at Harvard on comedy writing, mm-hmm. what would the... What would the curriculum look like? Oh, great, great question. Well, PJ O'Rourke, who was one of the big National Lampoon editors, yeah. said that if he taught What's writing... The Confederacy of Dunces, did he write that? No, no, am I making that up? But he might have written the introduction to it or something. All right. Um, so he said that if he ever taught English, he would assign parodies. Because that's when you really learn something, is to parody it. So I would probably assign parodies of uh, literature. I would... Are there any particular parodies that... Uh, just sort of whatever you're studying in your other classes, mm-hmm. parody that. I see. And it really, I think, would open you up. Um, I think mischief is is just so important in comedy. It's really, there's just something like, am I really allowed to say that? You know, there, that's just the cool <laughs> thing. Am I really allowed to hear that? Um, I, I could pontificate. I know a couple things that I, I feel I have discovered about comedy. Um, that, you know, this is the- one is that the perfect, first of all, the most important thing is it is sort of a, it's like a physical, it's like sex in that it's about whether the other person is enjoying it or not, or you're enjoying it. You know, <laughs> like you could say, do this and that. And then if neither of you has a good time, you couldn't insist to me like, but I had good sex. No, you didn't. <laughs> like that, I gave you my best advice, like touch her here and take your time and whisper this. Like I could do that, but you'll know if it's good sex or not. These are just tips. Like it's a physical reaction that you're going for. Um, so there's that, you know, whatever you teach, it's like, hey, you'll, you'll feel it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you'll feel it. Or you'll hear it. You'll know. Mm-hmm. Um, so do it a lot. And, you know, probably, you know, don't take this class too seriously. One thing I've definitely learned about comedy, I don't know how it applies um, to what, uh, what maybe it applies to editing more than just to writing or finding what's good comedy. But I believe that a good comedy operates the exact same way a good mystery operates, which is the punchline should be something that was right in front of your face the whole time and you never would have put your finger on it. It's like the red doorknobs in oh, the sixth sense. the red doorknob. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of course, he was dead the whole time. You know, like, how did I not get that? That excitement, that elation, or like, it was the butler, it was the narrator, you know, whatever it was, that's the best comedy. When someone points out something, you're like, oh my God, that was so obvious, I never would have gotten it. <laughs> Another thing is that observa- observations are really the currency of comedy. Anything you do, if you observe something that touches a chord with somebody and that has not been expressed, right? You can turn that into a movie. You can turn that into a plot. You can turn that into a one-liner. Um, but anytime you observe something that, that a good new observation, that's what fuels 99% of comedy. And the other 1% is just people falling down or whatever. <laughs> 
And uh, is are there any particular uh, comics or comedy writers who are very good in your mind at the red doorknob effect? So hi, hitting you with punchlines that are have kind of been there all along, uh-huh. but they they do a good. Um, ca- well, a good- Aziz Ansari has a bit about marriage that I find brilliant. Um, I think it was one or two specials ago on Netflix where. He's like, if we invented marriage now, if you, if no one had heard of marriage and you proposed it to a girl, you would freak her out beyond belief. You know, I want a vow that will never like ever sleep with anyone else. And I want like rings on our fingers to symbolize it. And I want a priest to be there (laughs) and everyone we've ever met. And there'll be a ceremony. It'll be in the newspaper. You know, that is so funny to me because it's completely true. Never would have noticed it. Um, Louis CK is brilliant at, at pointing the stuff out, saying things that is kind of how you felt, but you never would have thought of it. Um, but even, you know, an, an abstract one liner comic like Zach Galifianakis, who I tried to see whenever I could, when I moved to LA, you know, even those are like, right, that phrase could mean that. Or why, even that is an observation, even that's just about language. That's true. Right. Like 24 hour banking, who has time for that? The Stephen Wright kind of approach. Like, right. Uh, You could look at it that way. You know who's really, really good at that is, uh, now that I'm getting sort of a finer feel for, for what you meant is, uh, I suppose a lot. I suppose perhaps the majority of really good stand up comics are good at this. I don't know, but, uh, uh, why am I blank? Dimitri Martin. Oh, yeah. Dimitri Martin is really good at the wordplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned, uh, you mentioned movies. We've mentioned List App a few times, and I feel like we should dig into that because my next question would be related to, uh, and maybe by, by means of example, we can get into List App. The, um, I was going to ask you for screenwriters, what would your curriculum look like? Uh-huh. And you put up a list recently, and maybe you can explain the the app as well, but you put up a list of some of your favorite movies. So you had right. Adaptation, mm-hmm. you had Naked Gun down towards the bottom, and uh, bottom of the top five though. Yeah, it's the top five. It was <laughs> Adaptation, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, um, Pulp Fiction, Casablanca, The Naked Gun. S- this is just personal. What right? You know, just if I were really going to die tomorrow and they said you could play a couple, I'm not trying to impress anybody mm-hmm. like, you know, it's just, it's not film history. It's just me. Now the, would those films correspond to the five screenplays that you would suggest people read if wow. you were signing them? Um, yeah, probably, probably the writing is front and center for all of them. Um, now adaptation is brilliant because it breaks all the rules and comments on all the rules. So maybe I wouldn't teach that first. That's sort of like, <laughs> also, if anybody says I want to be a writer, at least for me, yeah. I would say, watch that movie. Yeah. I'll talk you out of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I should really use a donut. God, I'm so hungry. Yeah. You know, like the- <laughs> well, you know, I guess all of these movies break the form and maybe that's why, you know, Casablanca probably, I don't know enough about film history, but it probably broke the form. Now it is the form. Um, so maybe I would. You know, but there are weird things in that. Pulp Fiction obviously completely breaks the form chronologically. Ferris Bueller, he narrates the movie to camera. Um, the Naked Gun is just, they'll do anything for a laugh. You know, I guess that's kind of formal in a way. Uh, adaptation, you know, completely commenting on itself. Uh, so I, yeah, maybe I think one lesson in all of that is, you know, it's not about the rules. It's about you and the audience, anything that you do. So uh, here's, I have a quote. This is maybe, I feel a little bit 
do you like, have you seen Memento? Yeah. Did you enjoy that movie? I thought it was okay. So when I saw it, I really enjoyed it. But that, I, a lot of people hold that up as an example of a movie that broke the rules where it didn't work. Like it, or it was, mm-hmm. uh, it was trying too hard to break the rules or something like that. I, I think it's a great, if I were him, if I were Nolan, I would, and that was my first big movie, I'd be very proud that I got everyone's attention. It's extremely clever as an idea. And if that's enough to give you pleasure watching it, or if that's enough to get your attention to watch it, and then you get pleasure watching it. I agree the premise is fantastically clever. I just wasn't personally, especially moved watching the story. And, um, I, you know, he's so big, it won't matter if I criticize him, but I have a, a real problem with the, the Chris Nolan worship in cinema. I think I would, that's a screenplay. That's a writer I would never teach if I were teaching screenwriting. Why is that? Think, um, says the guy who's never <laughs> written a screenplay. Um, because a movie should be a pleasurable experience. That is my one sentence answer. And I find his movies um, cold and formal. And I find his demeanor as a public director cold and formal. And uh, please don't make this a headline of your podcast. (laughs) If someone listens all the way here, they can see everyone's opinions. But um, I find his movies completely um, unpleasurable. Exclusive to TMZ. Yeah, and I feel that the formality has conned people into reverence when in fact no one was smiling at any of these Batman movies that everyone gave such a claim to. And no one was smiling at inception. Um, and no one understood interstellar. I am a well-educated guy. I have a real interest in science. I write screen stories for a living and I could not follow this. So who is following this? You know, a, a movie should be entertaining you and, uh, and, inviting you in. So that's, that's a screen order I would not teach. Got it. How did you get into tech and why tech? I find tech. And again, this is sort of the formal rules of anything. First of all, tech is the best field at, at being the first to tell you that there are no rules. It's about what you make and how people respond to it, which I really love. And I, you know, I think tech is leading the way for entertainment and you realize, Oh, everything is about, you know, very soon on the Apple TV, you'll be able to say the MIDI project and you won't have any idea what network it's on. Uh, it's all about whether Mindy Kaling, um, full disclosure, a good friend of mine, it's all about whether Mindy Kaling has made a good show, gotten the budget, gotten the cast, convinced them to do it. That's a big deal. And made it well, that's a very big deal, and gotten enough publicity for it that you are curious about it, but that's it. And there has been a lot of bullshit in terms of what night is it on and what's the competition like and how is it, you know, and who picked it up and why and who funded it and how much do they get and is it going to make syndication? And that noise is has nothing to do with the product and the audience. And I think tech is leading the way in removing that. And I think tech is really, I, the reason I've always been drawn to it and always pitched every idea I ever had in tech to my friends in tech is because it seemed like a utopian version of you have an idea and you see if it's a good idea, you know, just like with stand up, just like with writing scenes for the office. I think this is a great idea, but I won't know <laughs> until it goes to the set and it succeeds or fails, or I bring it on stage and no one laughs or everyone does laugh. That to me is the biggest pleasure is having an idea and if, and seeing if you're right. 
And so tech seemed to me you could have a huge idea and and it could be right. Whereas in other fields, a huge idea, you need to be at a huge scale to even try it out. So that's why I always had like, you know, I that's why I met Blake Ross because in 2006 or seven, you know, I had a friend, Charlie Cheever, who worked at Facebook. Sure. And I said, can I see Facebook? You know, can I have a tour? Um, so, and I, I would cultivate these friendships. And I, these guys, to me, that was, I think, what a lot of people looked at show business um, and in the world I was in and thought that's so creative, I would look at this world and think, wow, you can have an idea. And then if it works, it works. That's, that's so beautiful. There, yeah, there is a, uh, and of course, like everything, it turns out to be way more complicated, Yeah, but I think less complicated than other fields. And, uh, less and less complicated from the standpoint of testing ideas, right? Because right. you have, cheaper and cheaper rentable infrastructure, whether it's Amazon Web Services mm-hmm. or otherwise. You have a global talent market where you can right. use people remotely or locally or in some distributed fashion like Automatic, which I advise. You know, the guys who do WordPress.com and whatnot. I mean, they have 400 plus people who are all distributed. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you have the Kickstarters and other means of funding that weren't available right. five, ten years ago. So if you had an idea for a store mm-hmm. 20 years ago, that's you really put your whole life your on hold to pursue that a compromise of a compromise of that idea for a store. Yep. And now you can you can make that store. Yeah, you can do it in an afternoon and then yeah. see see how it goes. So it, can you describe uh then what it is that you're working on right now? So this is uh I've tried to get you on and I know we'll get you on when we have the Android. Um this is the list app and it's as simple as it sounds. It's um li.st is our domain. So eventually when we have web, we'll probably just um, want to be known as list, but it's, it's really that simple. And we aim to be that universal, just a place for lists socially. Um, so that my original idea was we all have these lists in our phones, in our notebooks, in our minds of what are the good restaurants in LA, et cetera. I wish I could see those lists on the phones or whatever of the people I care about, or occasionally a celebrity or a publication that I would turn to for, this type of thing. And I wanted a place. It seemed so simple to me. Why hasn't it been done? I thought a place where you could put these lists and everyone would put them and then you could search them and read them. And that is essentially what we built. So in this case, yeah, like I, I think, I think I'm right. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not saying I'm a genius or anything at all. I, I, I it seemed like this was something worth testing. And if you do it right and someone shows you an idea and you say, oh, not that, but yes, that. And like anything else, the most important thing is is who you partner with. And so I knew I didn't know this field. And I, I hired a company to make screenshots because everyone I pitched this to treated me the way I would treat them if a tech person pitched me a good idea for a TV show. I'd say, that sounds like a good idea. I don't think you understand what it takes to, <laughs> do you have a director? Do you have funding? Do you have a cast? Do you know how to do a rewrite? You know, no, no, it's, I mean, just an idea. Shouldn't someone make, you know, so that's how they treated me. And I thought, well, I need to show that I'm serious and, and that it would be good. So I asked friend after friend, do you know anyone who could make mock-ups for me? So I hired this great company called Two Toasters. Two in Toasters. New York. Yeah. And apparently it's named after coincidentally an office uh, reference where Stanley ends up with two toasters because he bought one for Phyllis's wedding. Um, but I didn't know that when I met, I didn't even remember the reference when I met them. Um, so I, I drew up 
I'm not a good artist, but I drew very simple. You know, again, I'm, this is not anything innovative. I drew up what a list would look like, very similar to Twitter, to Instagram, to Tumblr, you know, a very you know, vertical feed of lists and how you'd search for them and how you'd add a suggestion to someone else's and how you'd compose. And I asked, can you make uh, sort of a nice mock-up of each of these main screens? So they, I paid them to make them. And then I would walk around and I'd tell people the idea and they'd say, yeah, it sounds good. I'd show them and they would try to tap. And they couldn't because it was just a mock-up. And that, that's how I knew, okay, they want to be using this. I showed them that I'm serious. They, they know what it feels like to want to see the next screen. And I showed, then I went to, then the guy at Two Toasters, Simon, said, I host a tech breakfast in New York once a month. I was going to be in town for that tech breakfast. So I went to it, talked to everyone. I'd say about 49% of the people were way too nice to me because I was a celebrity. About 49% of the people were way too hard on me because I was a celebrity and what am I doing here? Then there was like one guy um, who took me seriously, who met me at my level and said, I like it for these reasons. I think these are my concerns. And, you know, and his name was Matt Whitheiler and he was a VC at Flybridge, which is not, doesn't do this kind of thing generally, but he was interested. So I asked if I could have lunch with him. I almost canceled. I was hung over. I'm like, what am I doing? I, I'm here like to do press for a TV show. And I'm, why am I pursuing this crazy tech thing? And like, everyone wants to do a startup. I almost canceled, but I didn't. I show up to meet him. And he says, um, he says, I know the co-founder for you. I don't think you can get him, but it's worth a try. I've been trying to convince this guy to leave his job forever. Um, but I think he might like this because he's done stuff like this before. And his name was Dev Flaherty. He, he ran product at Fab. He had previously worked for a sort of a map-based uh, travel startup. And the original idea for this was travel lists, of course, would be big. So I said, um, let us let me try. I was leaving the next day. I emailed Dev, had dinner with him at uh, the Ace Hotel in New York, the Breslin. And we sat down Lots right away. Lots of fatty food. Yeah. <laughs> right away, I was like, I'm doing, the, I'm doing with this guy. I'm not doing it. You know, he, we wore the exact same watch an IWC pilot. So like a nice, simple watch with great design, great classic design. We ordered a bullet bourbon, each of us. <laughs> so we have the same taste, you know, and just like Matt Whitheiler, he was hard on the idea and respected the idea, asking all the right questions. And, um, and he, and he could talk and he, his wife was a, uh, was a television writer and he was interested in what I was interested in and he was Tellingly, he was a parks and recreation fan, but not an office fan. <laughs> so <laughs> he he liked the kinds of things I liked, but he was not impressed by me, my celebrity. He heard I was somebody, but you know he didn't care. He cared about Ron Swanson. So you know he was like adjacent. <laughs> he was the perfect match. And um, he said, "Lena, let me think about it. Let me think about it." And then his wife kept getting up for jobs. In uh, Hallie Gross is fantastic writer. Um, I think she's a fantastic writer, fantastic talker and thinker, and she's on great shows. So I assume she's a great writer. Um, so she kept getting more and more attention in LA, and then she was up for this huge writing job in LA on an HBO show, and no one was rooting for that job harder than me. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm praying that Hallie gets hired because I know if Dev moves to LA, I'm sure he'll do this. And sure enough, she got the job, and he finally committed to doing this. And you know, he's really been leading sort of the, the overall, um, you know, why I think this is so good is because of deaf. I, I have a lot to do with the community. I obviously have a lot to do with the, the conception. And I, I argue for all my taste all the time, but 90 plus percent of the time dev has already arrived there, um, and, and added more things that I should have thought of. 
What are some of the more popular lists that have popped up? Um, well, I can look at the trending lists right now. And I'll mention one to people. Yeah. And, and just because I found this actually very, very cool and helpful, which was a list which you put on Twitter or retweeted, I think. It was uh, Cheryl Strayed, and, uh, writer of yep. Wild, which was made into a movie. And she put out a list of writing prompts, so assignments, or I think they were more sentences or questions that you could use for writing exercises. And uh, what is your Twitter handle? Uh, at PJ Novak. So very simple, at PJ Novak. So d- download the app and also follow BJ on Twitter because he highlights also quite a few different lists. But that list in and of itself... Yeah, that was great. And she also did a list that was very moving, which is objects found in my mother's car at the moment of her death uh, or the time of her death. You know, just like a pen, you know, a lipstick, tickets to this play. I don't remember exactly what it was. It was, But I remember being just so stunned by the simplicity of of that power in list form. And, you know, there's a lot of writers on it so that... You know, there's a literary thing, but I'm looking here. You know, it's a mix of publications doing lists, celebrities doing lists, and of course, mostly just regular folks. But trending right now, um, the Washington Post made a, a list of the things Donald Trump has called on America to boycott. He's called for a lot of boycotts over the years. It's very interesting, including the company that makes his clothing line, which he didn't realize. Um, Vox made a list what NASA picked to explain our world to aliens. So what they put on Voyager 1 and 2, just, you know, a cool list. A girl named Jenna Martin, I know, uh, made a list, favorite Howard Stern interviews, and that's an open list. So you can make a suggestion on that list, and if she likes it, she double taps it. What, is, it what, are, the top, what are the top on the, the Howard Stern list? Howard Stern interviews, Lady Gaga, Bill Hader, Billy Joel, which was a great one. I heard that one. Jonah Hill, Jerry Seinfeld, great interviewer. Uh, James Taylor, I did not know that. Uh, although I've seen him be dark and funny. Chris Martin, apparently. So, you know, some of them are very helpful recommendations. A lot of books lists. And some um, of them are very funny. Now, correct, my, funny. correct me if I have a <laughs> faulty memory here, but I remember we were t- chatting on the phone a few months ago. And, uh, was it Lena Dunham who had dead people I'd have sex with? Am I oh, making yeah. that up? <laughs> yes, she did. And I'm looking right now. Anthony Bourdain made one that I thought was really funny. Oh, this was, uh, what was that? Uh, th- four spy novels, three written by spies, one yeah, by a non-spy? Yeah, he did that. He, he's a big reader and writer, obviously. His most recent one is called Hotel Slut. That's me. And, uh, you know, it's it's very much his writing style, but it's the hotels that he will stay, he will make an excuse to go to that town if he can stay in the following hotels, including one in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, Chateau Marmont here in L.A., the Raleigh in Miami. Um, so his lists are great. Anything in New York? Let me see what his New York choice is. I'm headed to New York shortly. So maybe I'll try. There's a lot of lists of like New York hotels. Um, but I, you know, and there's also a list of, if you ever say the Bowery, which Mm -hmm. is my favorite hotel there. Bowery's great. Um, there's two people at least have made lists of the best rooms at the Bowery. Um, (laughs) 1403 has this and 1401 has that. Oh, That's very useful. Very useful. I tried to stay at the Bowery. They were sold out for this upcoming trip. Um, So it's very useful and also, um, you know, very creative and there's great people behind it. For someone who downloads the app, what would you suggest to, to get them a very good taste of the types of content? What would you suggest they do? 
I would suggest just, it's very quick sign up flow, just sign up and there's a recommended follow menu and you can, it's, they'll take you to that screen automatically. But one of the things you can do is you can hit follow all. It's our top like hundred diverse accounts. So I'll read them right now. Um, not all a hundred, but you know, the first batch, Lena Dunham, Mindy Kaling, the New York times, Jimmy Fallon, the onion, Anthony Bourdain, the New Yorker, CNN, Andy Cohen, Vogue, Snoop, (laughs) Cheryl Strayed, um, Rachel Ray, you know, people, not everyone's John Mayer wired Ted talks. Not everyone's going to, you know, like all of these, but then just unfollow because it will give you a real, um, you know, assortment. And there's a lot of, you know, civilians on there too, just people that are like making, you know, crazy personal or advice lists. And so it's a real, I would just say sign up, hit recommended, hit follow all recommended and just see what you like. Very cool. Do you have, as, as we have a, plane zooming overhead. Uh, do you have a little bit more time for some rapid fire questions? Yeah, sure. All right, cool. So we're going to shift gears just a little bit. Successful. When you hear the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind and why? Shakespeare. Why? Because he made things that were both moving and permanent and, uh, and popular. What was your both uh, three things? It shows making, you how far I am from that. What What was your thesis on? Did you write a senior thesis? Well, you did your homework. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did one on. Uh, mine was on. It's very specific in the films of Hamlet, how they treat the line to be or not to be, because that line already has a lot of mystery within the play. Exactly what it means, uh, but then you add all the culture. Like if you pay to see a movie of Hamlet, like. You're waiting for it to be or not to be the whole time. So how do the cultural expectations affect the interpretation of that line? Got it. Yeah, the bard. I mean, it's <laughs> there are a lot of people who make me want to cry into a pillow. But as as a, as a writer who's trying to improve, that's that's certainly way up at the top of the yeah. list. Uh, what book or books do you give most often as gifts? There's a book called The Oxford Book of Aphorisms which I love. It's just, um, the most well edited, like brilliant one-liners from history. Um, and you can just, you can spend like hours on a page. It's just, or you can just flip through it. I give that one a lot. The Oxford and book. I'm, I'm going to give daily rituals. That book we mentioned a lot too. Is a anyone book. who's creative or ambitious, uh, you take so much solace in seeing all the different processes people just do, you know, what does Charles Dickens do every day? What did he do every day? What did Darwin do every day? What does Steve Jobs do every day? You know, it, it's just so reassuring to see like, eh, everyone's got their own system. And it, it, it also is very reassuring to see how dysfunctional so many of them are. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, depressing too. Yeah. Depressing in some cases. Uh, great book. I actually produce the audiobook for people who want to try the audio. Uh, if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Um, I'd love to be great looking. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a bad looking I'm guy. I'm not terrible looking, thank you. But, you know, I look at James Franco and he does all the things he does. <laughs> I mean, and I'm like, man. James Franco. Well, I mean, look at his brother. I mean, they're like. No, I'm saying. It's a look, handsome family. Tim, if I could have whatever I wanted, yeah. I, I could lie and say, oh, I'd learn to I'd be better at empathy. <laughs> no, I'd be like fucking awesome looking. <laughs> and, you know, then I would like. You know, if you're James Franco, you can do anything. And people are like, well, it's pretty interesting. Like, anything. <laughs> and I wish I had that extra level 
<laughs> I'm just answering. No, this. no, I appreciate the honesty. Fucking awesome. This looking. is good. Uh, do you have any bad habits that you're currently working on? Yeah, uh, of course. Um, I I zone out. Um, any conversation, I'm not holding a microphone. <laughs> um, I I zone out easily. I just love daydreaming, and I think it is it's so indulgent in a good way to the creative process, but then you get used to that indulgence when someone else deserves your attention. So I try to be better at that. How do you go about trying to become better at that? It's just a conscious decision not to zone out. I, good question. I don't have a, a process yet. <laughs> okay. I'm just always berating myself. I do the it. same thing. So if you come up with anything, please let me know. Uh, words or phrases that you overuse. Pretty. That's my one too. Really? Oh, I hate it. I started trying to fix it by saying. Wait, do you use it as an adverb or an adjective? How do you use it? Adverb. See, I use it as an adjective. Oh, okay. Um, but I don't mind using it. Okay. Yeah, I say, oh, that's pretty interesting. Oh, that's pretty. Right. That's pretty. And I tried to fix it at one point by by forcing myself to say fucking afterwards. So I yeah. say that's pretty fucking interesting. That's yeah, pretty that's pretty fucking good. smart. I'd... And eventually, it short circuited for a while. It's definitely. Uh, I overuse like, which is so embarrassing because it's not a very masculine word to overuse, but I do like as a verb or like, like as, as a, an, I don't even know what it is. It's a stutter really right? like, Oh, I, like. I see. Yeah, I see. Yeah. <clears throat> what do you have anything in writing long form? Let's say in a book, one of mine is for instance, like that having been said or something. Sure. Um, I overwrite a lot and I need to pare it down. Got it. So Just I don't too know many any revisions. one phrase, but, uh, no, no. I mean, I just, I do stuff like that because it's, it, it sounds, um, I don't know. It kind of, it gives extra elegance to a stupid idea. And then I need to go back and, and be like, you know what? Put some monkey in a suit. Right? Yeah. It's something I learned on the office too. If you're, if a scene should be two pages and it's four pages, it's a bad scene. It's just you, cause you keep writing when you haven't hit it. So if it, if it's a great scene, you might, it might just be a two line exchange. I love you. I don't love you. Like, whoa, that's a scene. But if, if the scene is like, so I was thinking the other day, my feelings, you know, like that's not a scene. You know it's not working. Yeah. So if you overwrite, it's often a sign that, that you have not hit it and you're still looking for it. What, uh, what is the best purchase that you've made in recent memory for less than $100? Um, an ice cube tray that has giant ice cubes in it. Anytime I'm at a bar and they have like a big ice cube, I feel like, oh, what this should cost like a hundred dollars. This is so nice. And then I thought, well, wait, the the rubber ice cube tray shouldn't be any more expensive. It's just a different shape mold. So I go on Amazon and sure enough, Tivolo, I think is the company, mm-hmm. you know, for like seven dollars, it's six huge ice cubes. And if anyone comes over and I make them a drink, they have one huge ice cube in their glass and it's like I have a fancy bar. Love it. <laughs> Uh, do you have any favorite documentaries? You know what? Do you mind if I look at the list app? I don't mind if you look at the list app. Favorite documentaries on the list app. Um, I love documentaries and I'll throw, I'll just to buy some time. I'll throw one out. Well, I loved man on wire when it came out, very uniquely put together and the same team made a documentary uh, subsequent to that called Project Nim, which was about a chimpanzee, I think this was in the 70s, effectively raised as a human child to see if uh, Nim, in this case, could, uh, I think it was 
Noam, no, Nim Chomsky or Chimsky, they called him in any case, could acquire language. And uh, just a fascinating documentary on uh, human thought, human interaction with this chimp and so on. Uh, um, on my list, Catfish. It's a cliche, but Catfish yeah. is a brilliant documentary. I, I still haven't seen it's it. It's brilliant. It's generation defining and it's just become a term, but it, it earned that term. Um, brilliant movie. To Be and To Have is on my list. A beautiful, um, a beautiful, simple film about a one-room schoolhouse in France and just what happens over the course of a year. There's really little story, but uh, but it really holds your attention and gives you a spirit of a place. Um, and if I choose one more... Oh, you know what's a really cool one? It's called The Overnighters, and it's about the oil fields in North Dakota. It came out a couple years ago on this pastor who has a church there. Hmm. Uh, the Back in Oil Fields, which is... Like probably bigger than the gold rush in the 1800s, and just like now that you can frack, there's so much oil in North Dakota that a whole like culture, like you you can rent like a garage in North Dakota for like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. You know, it's just there's so much money there, and such a rush to be close to it. And that's a really interesting. The overnighters. Yeah. So I usually ask about morning routines, but I want to ask about uh, and and you can feel free to answer that but i'm so curious to dig a little bit into your powering up yeah so how would you power up to, to kind of get into the zone um i have a venti pike place coffee from starbucks um i find that what, how is it made just black yep black i find that brewing my own coffee at home is so unpredictable it's like getting artisanal tylenol like, just, I want to know what my dose is, you know, like you wouldn't be like, Oh, I made some Tylenol for you. No, give me two Tylenol. So I want a standard dose of caffeine. You, right, you want your standard yeah. like loading dose of caffeine. Yeah. Got it. So I have uh, a venti from Starbucks. Uh, now when you have it, you mean you purchase or do you just down the thing like a shot of tequila? I either drive to the Starbucks. No, I, I it takes an hour cause I'm, I will sometimes read the paper um, the Wall Street Journal or the recently the Wall Street Journal, which I find really good, especially on weekends, but or the New York Times is my favorite. And uh, I often read that, usually read that online. And, you know, just emails and I turn on music. I usually listen to um, Morning Becomes Eclectic on KCRW. Morning Becomes Eclectic? Yeah, it's this great show from 9 to 12 every weekday, commercial free, like just cool new music. Um, I also have a list on my, on the app of music that I work to. Mm-hmm. So, and they have a 24-hour station. Do you have another one that you can pull from memory? That uh... Yeah, yeah. Um, I will often do Pandora of early blues. Early blues. good to just... So, yeah, I listen to music. Um, or Sirius XM 35 is like indie music that I like. So you just listen to music. It's just about being in a good mood. I, I slowly drink that Starbucks. I sometimes take a walk around Runyon Canyon or my neighborhood. Um you know, text, email. If there's a book, I'm kind of reading and read a couple chapters. And then eventually I'm just like, all right, like either I'm excited by an idea or I'm, it's like three 30 and I'm like this powering up turned into lunch, turned into a workout, you know? And I'm like, God damn it. I cleared out my whole day and it's three fucking 30 and I haven't written anything. You know, then I just start looking at my files and uh, then I finally get going. So yeah, the power up can have a happy or a sad ending. Do you, is there a particular time of day that you find you, you, you tend to do your best writing? Um, 
for me, it's always been super late night. I don't know why that is. For synthesis, yeah. for note-taking, for interviewing, I can do that whenever. But mm-hmm. for synthesis, I've always been kind of a 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. kind of huh. guy for whatever reason. Um, it's hard for me to get myself to work later in the day. So probably my most productive time is like 11 to 2. Mm-hmm. But, um, the, you know, the creative ideas can come anytime. I never know when those are coming. Uh Let's see here. Uh, if people wanted to watch, besides The Office, one or two TV shows for good comedy writing, any particular recommendations? Um, I love the show right now called The Grinder with Rob Lowe That's, and yeah. Fred Savage. That's very, very good writing. Um, season four of Mr. Show is brilliant sketch writing. Um, Could you explain what you mean by sketch? I, I apologize. Oh, sketch like, like SNL. Like, you mm-hmm. know, got it, got it. Um, yeah, I'd say, yeah, those are, those are pretty great ones. Cool. Just a few more questions. Yeah. What historical figure do you most identify with? Oh, um, in my hopes, Ben Franklin, because he started in comedy and then I I make a joke about this in my stand-up act. Like, he really took it to the next level. I mean, he wrote Poor Richard's Almanac, and he was known as a comedy writer. And then he ended up, you know, discovering electricity and having his face on money. Like, that is really... And he remained like a witty um, guy. So my hope is that I could do some shadow where I can have uh, ambitious, um, positive-spirited ideas but it won't be like, oh, now, like he lost his sense of humor. Like Ben Franklin always had a sense of humor and he wasn't ashamed to like, like experiment with, you know, a lightning, you know, yeah. like that, that's really cool. But I, I, even in my most egotistical, I don't actually identify with him. He's just like, you know, if I'm stacking myself up. Yeah. Yeah. Aspirational, aspirational figure. Model. So probably someone more, you, yeah. Someone, I don't know, like funny and dark and like, I don't know. For for someone un- recognizing that no path is quite the same for people, certainly that that I've met in entertainment or comedy or whatnot, from going from school to the industry mm-hmm. of, uh, if we could call it one industry of entertainment, let's just say you had a promising high school senior, yeah, who's a gifted writer. And they think they want to be in comedy writing. What advice would you give them? Um, A bunch of things. One piece of advice that I stand by that I've given to a bunch of people is there's really two, think of it as two things. You need to get people's attention and you need to be able to back it up. So this is especially for getting, I feel that most people who want to get into comedy, what they want to do these days is get a staff job on a TV comedy show. So to do that, you need, think like the person hiring you. You're going to want, if you were given your own show, you'd panic. This is my one big shot. It's got to be hilarious. You'd hire your most loyal, funniest friends first. Then you'd ask around, um, you know, who worked on, 
you know, my favorite shows, who's the best, best, best person, you know, and those names would come to you through an agent or something. And then you'd like anyone that you saw or heard, or you were at a stand-up show and this guy was hilarious, or someone sent you this internet video, or, you know, you just don't know, or you'd ask around and someone would send you something. So the first thing is get their attention. That means, could mean be friends with somebody or have collaborated with somebody. Another thing is you might want to make something. I don't, for me, it was stand-up, but I don't know what it is for anyone else. It could be um, probably some internet video. I feel like that's the best way to, you can be completely wild and get seen, but you know, make something truly great. That's could be anything, absolutely anything. Then once you have someone's attention, they're going to want to be sure that they're not taking a crazy bet on some kid who made some funny video who then gets in a writer's room and doesn't know what to do. So that generally means have a spec script, which is a speculative, a script that could be for a TV show. So you write an episode of The Office or The Simpsons or whatever, just to show that if you were on that stuff, you'd be able to know the voices, you'd know how to format it, you'd know how to craft a story, you can write hard jokes. So have you know a spec script, and it'll probably take you a few to get a really good one, but back it up and get their attention. Um, now that's for anyone starting out. I don't know if I'd advise a high school senior to go right into TV writing. So this advice is probably more for someone who just graduated college or someone, whatever stage of life, they're just ready to start this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if you're really going to go to college, I'd say, um, you know, stay funny, like Mm -hmm. be around funny people, come up with funny ideas, make your friends laugh. Um, be mischievous. Yeah. Be mischievous. (laughs) Now you are, Am I making this up 30, let me Six. This, 36. What advice would you give your 30-year-old self, and, <laughs> and where were you, what were you doing at 30? At 30, I was on The Office. Um, I wish I had told myself on The Office, and this might be specific to me. The whole time I was on The Office, I thought, well, this is my best shot at whatever I'd ever want to do. So I better not waste a second. I better write a screenplay. I better, you know, make a avant-garde film. I better get cast in something. I better do my big thing while I'm still in the office because I don't want to be that guy who used to be in the office. Um, so, but I didn't have time. I would had two jobs on the office. Either one of them takes up, should take up your focus. Now you, as at one point you had three, right? I mean, was writer, producer, actor? Well, or? producer tends to just be high level writer. Got it. So I take that, that was the same job. Um, but you know, it's important. It means the writing is really for the whole show is part of your responsibility. So I wish I could tell, and now people ask me, did you, what was it like working in the office? Was it so much fun? Were you laughing all the time? Yeah, but I have to admit that's buried under, I was so anxious and always trying to write some extra thing on the side that I never finished and never had time for. And I really didn't just enjoy this incredible once in a lifetime thing. And you know, as soon as the office ended, I was talented enough to write a book and I'm proud of the book. And I made the app and I worked really hard and I was able to pull it off. Like, you know, if you can do it, you can do it. It's, you're not really on someone else's schedule ever. And you know, I also tell people all the time, like if Will Smith isn't in a movie for three years, you're not walking around saying, where's Will Smith? No one's paying attention to anybody else at all. You think everyone is, but they're not. So take as long as you want. If you're talented, it's not really, you know, you'll, 
you'll get their attention again if if you have reason to. And so I do wish I had told myself back then, like, this is this is very, very special. Like, own it, be in it, enjoy it. Um, instead of, you know, being so nervous and, you know, all for nothing. None of the things I tried to do on the side of the office ever got anywhere because I just didn't have time. I think that's good advice for a lot of people in a lot of places. That was the advice also that Stephen King gave to Neil Gaiman, one of my favorite fiction really? writers. What was the advice? Well, he said, enjoy it. Because Neil was sitting at, I think it was a book signing for Sandman, which was just this uh, in- incredible uh, canon of work that redefined what, what was possible in sort of the graphic novel mm-hmm. genre. Yeah, I world. know of that book. Just incredible. And uh, he's used that, of course, as a stepping stone to write novels and, and that were, have been turned into movies and so on. Uh, but he was sitting there with this huge line of people, as I remember it, and he said, enjoy this. Mm-hmm. And that's my laptop sliding, but, uh, <laughs> he didn't, he had a lot of trouble enjoying it. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's a constant battle. Well, I don't want to uh, take up any more of your time. This has been a blast. Oh, it's it's getting so great. It's getting dark and probably time for some food. Where can people find you and what you're up to online? Where are the best places to, um, to go? I, you know, I think the best place is the list app because that's where I <laughs> am. Uh, so I would say download the list app on the app store or it'll be on Android and web soon. And that's just three words, the list app or go to li.st. Um, and my profile there is all my favorites and uh, ideas and thoughts on this and that. Um, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, yeah. Big. At BJ Novak. At BJ Novak. Awesome. And that's me on the list app too. Cool. Well, this has been great fun. Maybe we'll do a round two sometime. And thanks so much again. I really appreciate it. So cool. And to everybody listening, you can find the show notes, links to all the books, shows, apps, et cetera, that were mentioned at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, or you can just go to fourhourworkweek.com and click on podcast has show notes for this episode and every other episode. And as always, until next time, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it.